February 26, 1981, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones lay dying, unable to speak. He scribbled his last words on a piece of paper. Don't pray for healing. Don't hold me back from the glory. And on that day, the doctor finally met the great physician. Let us pray. Our precious Heavenly Father, I humbly come before you trembling. An unworthy sinner to be behind this pulpit, Father. I do pray that you would get me out of the way, protect me from error, that, that you may be glorified, Father. Pray these things in the name of your precious Son, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to turn to the Gospel of John, the 11th chapter. As Christians, we may have heard the stories many times, and I hope we do not become jaded to them. To the Gospel of John, uh, we'll start with chapter 1. Now for the words of the true and living God. Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. We are taught in Scripture that God sends sickness for different reasons. For the conversion of the soul, it shows the sin of our heart, and it draws the souls, as Brother Cook said, to seek a resting place in Christ. For the conversion of our friends, God's will cut down the praying child so the rest may turn and pray. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. That's 1 Corinthians 11.30. And so that Christ may be glorified. A child is sick, that Christ might be glorified. Quote by Vodi Bakum, sometimes sick saints are glorified when they get well, but more often than not, God is glorified when sick saints die well. It was, it was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped the feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sisters sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. Here we can see the petition. He whom thou lovest is sick. God's children should not doubt his love when he afflicts. If many of you have hopefully not been through serious surgeries, the surgeon does not bend his eye or take his eye off the patient as he tenderly performs the surgery of the patient, just as God does not take his eyes off his children when he afflicts them. A great comfort to know that Christ knows where we live. Just as a sparrow falls to the ground, are we not more valuable than they? The message they sent unto him, the petition, he whom thou lovest is sick. We can see a contrast in praying for the will of God in a worldly prayer. If a worldly prayer, if a worldly person had prayed this, it would have gone much differently. He who loves thee is sick. 
Here is one that has believed upon thy name, has confessed your name to the world, has suffered reproach and scorn for thee, has done many works in your name. But Martha and Mary knew how to bring their petitions to Christ. The answer, a word of promise. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified. An immediate response, a word of promise. This sickness is not unto death. Now, Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and her sister, Lazarus. This comes from the words of divine inspiration in the Gospel of John. Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love, therefore with loving kindness that I have drawn thee, that no man can come to me except the Father draw him. In this, from the beginning, when we talk about the doctrines of grace, they're, they're all throughout the Gospel of John. Here we can see the doctrine of election. Lazarus was a child of God. It was not revealed to us why, but God loved Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. But we know there are no God-seekers, none are righteous, no, not one. We are dead in sin, but we can see that God bestowed his grace upon that household. Christ delays. Christ purposely waits. When he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place he was. Purposely waits. Appears to be a contradiction. If Christ loves them, why does he tarry? But our God is in the heavens and does as he pleases. Reasons for the delay. The Apostle Paul in in Romans 9, Nay, O man, in some interpretations I like, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? He is God. He sees the end from the beginning. Known unto him are all his works from the foundation of the world. Although Christ may have been absent in the body, he was present with Lazarus. He saw his health decline, heard every gentle sigh, saw every tear of Martha and Mary. He knew the grave would give up the dead and would turn their rejoicing into weeping. It's a beautiful quote by Robert Murray McShane I'd like to share with you is to increase their faith. So it is with all trials of faith, when God gives a promise, he always tries our faith. Just that the roots of a tree take firmer hold when they are contending with the wind. So faith takes a firmer hold when it struggles with adverse appearances. Then after that, he said unto his disciples, let us go unto Judea again. His disciples say unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in a day? 
If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. But if a man walketh in the night, he stumbleth not, because there is no light in him. These things said he, and after that he said unto him, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. We see Christ's determination. Let us go into Judea again. An immediate objection from the disciples. It's dangerous to him and them. We can see the selfishness of man. They did not care for the distress of Martha and Mary or the suffering of their friend Lazarus. And here we can see Christ's love to a dead Lazarus. He calls him friend. What a friend we have in Jesus. What a great friend we have in Jesus that he does not forget his children, that he loves his children and knows them by name. I was privileged to to walk at the Welsh Tracks Cemetery before coming here. I always cherish the old Baptist history. And you can see a lot of the headstones. You can't read the names, but God knows his children. God knows his children. Even when when dead, few people remember the dead. We are a vapor. Christ's dead are never forgotten. He is faithful. Keep in mind the sleep and dust of his brothers and sisters. Death does not change love. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. The mistake. We can see blindness in the understanding. Then he said, disciples, Lord, if he sleeps, he shall do well. If we study the Bible, we can understand that sleep is a common expression for death of the saints in the Old Testament. And once again, privileged to walk around Welsh Tract, uh, uh, London Tract, Princeton, uh, the Hopewell Church. It's a beautiful thing to see that even on some of the, the headstones, they use that common expression. He sleepeth. You can see some of that, those expressions written on those tombstones. But it is a common expression in the Old Testament. Thou shalt sleep with thy fathers from Deuteronomy 31.16. Many that sleep in the dust of the earth shall wake. Daniel 12.2. Thou shalt sleep with the fathers. 2 Samuel 7.12. Now shall I sleep in the dust. Job 7.21. Let I sleep the sleep of death, Psalm 13.3. We must be diligent to search patiently the words of Christ from Arthur Pink. The cause of the mistake was fear. The reason people do not understand, they do not want to be convinced of sin. Christ orders all events for his own glory. When Christ healed the man... Deaf and dumb, the multitudes cried, He hath done all things well. He telleth the number of the stars, and he calleth them by their names. Psalm 147, 3 and 4. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death, but thou shalt he had spoken of taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. To the intent that ye may believe, netherless let us go unto him. 
Jesus purposely waits. I've studied some commentaries, and at that time, the kind of the belief was if Lazarus would have been resurrected before that time frame, they would have saw it more as a resuscitation and not a resurrection. So Jesus purposely waits. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, Let us also go that way we may die with him. Then when Jesus came, he found that he had laid him in the grave four days already. Now Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs off. And many of the Jews came, Martha and Mary, to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard the Jews was coming, went and met him and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. The presumption that thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. We can see the limiting of Christ, her unbelief. But yet she came to Jesus. The picture of a weak believer, much of nature and little of grace, questioning Christ's love and power, but yet she carries her petitions to him. It was not the Jews that Martha told her grief. It was not the disciples. It was Christ. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatever thou wilt ask God, God will give thee. We can see that she knows her theology, that she knows there's going to be a resurrection. Jesus said unto her, thy brother shall rise again. I am the resurrection head of all the dead believers and all believers shall live. We can see the comforting words of our Savior. Jesus said unto her, thy brother shall rise again. Martha said unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection in the last day. And Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? Martha's confession She's saying to him, Yea, Lord, I believe thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which come into the world. And then when she had so said, she went her way and called Mary, her sister, secretly saying, The Master has come and calleth for thee. Martha's confession, Yea, Lord, I believe, shows faith and love springs up in her heart. She knows her theology. Faith comes by hearing the voice of Jesus. Martha is the messenger. She found comfort at the feet of Jesus. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforted us in all our tribulation, that we be able to comfort them when we are in trouble by the comfort wherewith ourselves are comforted of God. Now Martha was a weak believer when compared with Mary, yet she brings the joyful news to her. Christ would use his children to accomplish his will. And and when he had so said, she went her way and called her Mary, secretly saying, The master has come and calleth for thee. 
And as soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came unto him. Now Jesus was not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews, then which were in her house and comforted her, when they saw Mary, that she rose up hastily and went out and followed her, saying, She goeth unto the grave to weep there. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. The meeting with Jesus. We see Mary repeats Martha's complaint. Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. We can see they were conversing in Christ's absence. We are very apt to learn unbelief from one another, but we should exhort one another daily while it is called today. But believers frequently discourage one another. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. We can see Jesus' compassion groaned in the spirit. This is humanity, her whom he loved so well. When he saw the Jews weeping, mere worldly friends, he groaned within himself. This shows his perfectly his perfect humanity. He asked, where have you laid him? This was also human, as God knew where they laid him. But he wanted them to lead him to the grave. He knew he was to raise Lazarus from the dead, but yet he wept. He teaches us to weep with each other. And we see verse 35, Jesus wept. And this is the kind of crying Jesus wept, shows his humanity. This is the kind of crying when you have to catch your breath. He groaned in the spirit. And Jesus said, then said the Jews, behold how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? Jesus, therefore, again, groaning in himself, coming to the grave. It was a cave, and a stone lay upon it, the grave. Jesus said, Take ye away the stone, Martha, the sister, sisters of him that was dead, said unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he had been dead four days. Take away the stone, the grave, the command. Take away the stone. Christ's ways are not our ways. When Christ arose from the dead, the the dead himself, the angel of the Lord descended from heaven, came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. Matthew 28, 2. But Jesus did not do do so now. He said, take away the stone. We can see that God uses his children to accomplish his will. We can see a stark contrast in the resurrection and then how Christ raised Lazarus. He uses his children to accomplish his perfect will. To bring out the unbelief that it might be manifested. The men around the grave could not give life to dead Lazarus, but they could roll back the stone. Jesus was about to use divine power 
and waking the dead, but he would not take away the stone. Martha's unbelief, she forgot the words, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God and that the Son of God may be glorified thereby. Thy brother shall rise again. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth on me, though we're dead, yet shall live. She forgot her own declaration. She was standing in her own life. Christ reproof. Jesus said unto her, said I not unto thee that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God. His prayer was secret, not just tears of feeling, tears of earnest prayer. We are taught to pray in our trials. Then they took away the stone from the place where he was, where he was dead, where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I know that thou hearest me always. But because of the people which standeth by, I said it, that there are many that believest thou this, thou hast sent me. And, and when he thus has spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. We see the raising of Lazarus. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaketh the cedars, yet the Lord breaketh the cedars of Lebanon. Psalm 29.4. The words of Christ were fulfilled. This sickness is not unto death but the glory of God and that the Son of God might be glorified. And then, then that he was dead came forth bound, hand and foot with the grave clothes, and his face was bound with a napkin. And Jesus said unto him, Loose him and let him go. And we can see that Lazarus, dead for four days, that he came forth from the grave, heart beating, breathing again, body alive, Physically, that he arose a resurrection, and we could see the power of God. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had said these things which Jesus did believed on him. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees and councils and said, What do we do? For this man doeth many miracles. If we have let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. We can see the effect on the bystanders that many believed in him. Bitter grief turned into a song of praise. Unbelief was cleared away. The shepherd found some lost sheep that night. They saw divine power and divine love to sinners. Some went and told the Pharisees, some were saved, and some were hardened. We can see that I will, God, from Romans 9, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. We can see that this happened here as well. And then Christ will raise the dead. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, which all there is, a great shall hear this voice and shall come forth. They have not done good unto the resurrection of the life, and the day they have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. 
There is a day I long for when I will hear the beautiful words of my Savior saying, come forth, come forth. Thank you for your time and attention. We started last week going through the articles of faith and just want to maybe touch on one, possibly two more of the articles of faith and pray the Lord will. Uh, this will be a blessing to you. The articles of faith uh, that Mount Carmel uh, embraced uh, go back to uh, about 88 years ago. And we, to my knowledge, they have not changed since that time. We have embraced these articles. I preached through them a few years ago, and I feel like that it's important to uh, go through them again. It's, it's good as a reminder of what the church here believes that the Bible sort of uh, in a summary represents and holds to. And these articles very likely were passed down from churches in North Carolina. Uh, the church was started by uh, folks that came up from North Carolina, Southern Virginia, uh, ministers from that area. And so when churches are started, oftentimes they're an extension or an arm of another church, primitive Baptist. And so as they pass them down, they stay very much the same. After I preached on this last Sunday, Sister Jewel Kenway sent me a text and uh, with a picture of the articles of faith that were hanging in the church in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, when she was attending there. And now they're in her house uh, hanging on the wall there. And those articles are very much like the ones here. And those folks out there had not had any uh, connection to the folks here in Maryland, other than through the uh, lintage of the Primitive Baptist uh, and the churches that had worshipped. So we don't have a, a hierarchy. We don't have a, a headquarters. We don't have somebody that's designing this and sending it out to the individual churches. Each church is autonomous. But we get it and it's passed down from other churches. And so these articles, uh, as I mentioned, are very much the same as uh, no matter where you go and attend uh, Primitive Baptist. This is pretty well what you'll what you'll find. I'll read through the first three that we talked about last week and maybe we'll address the fourth one. Number one, we believe that there is but one true and living God and that in the Godhead there are three persons, the Father, the Word, or Son, and the Holy Ghost, which three are one. We just simply believe that Jesus Christ came and was born in the flesh and he represents God himself. We believe the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is part of that Trinity and yet the three together make one and it is God the Father manifesting himself through the Son Jesus Christ in the flesh and also with the Holy Spirit which is the comforter that he leaves with us here on this earth as long as we live here. He said I'll not leave you without a comforter and he tells us in John chapter 14 the name of that comforter is the Holy Spirit, which he says that uh, we know about, and he says he actually puts it in our heart, that God puts it there, and he does it effectively. So you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within your heart because God put it there, not because you sought it, not because you attained it or you earned it. It's because of God, through his abundant mercy, he planted the Holy Spirit within your heart. And so even though you experience the sorrows that Brother Chad's talked to us about, you experience the setbacks, you experience the difficulties here in this life, 
Even though you experience those times, there's something on the inside that encourages you. And that is the Holy Spirit that is the comforter that he gives you. So when you go through those hard times, you don't go through it by yourself. You go through it with the encouragement of the Holy Spirit inside of you. The second one, we believe that the Old and New Testament scriptures were given by the inspiration of God. And we accept them as being the only complete and unerring rule of faith and practice. Doesn't mean that there's not other good books to read. It doesn't mean that there's not some good commentaries that you might lean on and you might glean from. But what it does mean is that this is the only book that we believe is the inspired word of God. And you've seen signs where it says the buck stops here. Well, here's where it stops right here with the word of God. This is the authority right here. And so that's what we believe. We believe it's the inspired word of God. God breathed. And that is our rule of faith and practice. That's what we go to. I can remember growing up as a little boy, I would ask my grandmother, my grandfather a question. And before they would even answer the uh, question that I would ask them, they'd say, well, let's see what the Bible has to say about it. And they would look it up. They, they had a great big uh, Strong's Concordance. This is back before we had Google and all the abilities to, to type into your phone. And they would turn in this big, thick concordance and they'd find the verses that had to do with the question that I had. And they would show me two or three verses. And so their answer was very much predicated by what the Bible had to say about it. So we would do well if we would answer uh, questions that way. Let's see what the Bible has to say about it. This is our rule of faith and practice. The third one. We believe that God has always pursued his own infinitely wise plan in all of his works and ways and that he'll ever continue to do so. Hence, all things brought to pass, all things brought to pass by him are but the result of the holy, wise and determinate counsel from all eternity. And what we addressed last week was God is not the author of sin. No, not at all. Uh, We're the uh, ones that uh, benefit from sin and we suffer from our sin. We're the ones that are the proponents of sin. God is not the author of sin. When we sin, that does not mean that God caused us to sin. But yet God is in control. God does cause things to happen. God does allow things to happen. God does turn us over to ourselves sometimes. God does remove that hedge from around us sometimes in order for Satan to be able to uh, attack us sometimes. But Satan can only go as far as God will allow him to go. And this just simply means that God's in charge. God was in charge from the very beginning and God is still in charge and God will be in charge uh, in through eternity. And he doesn't lose that and he's not confused or he's not doubtful and he's not surprised about anything that takes place because God knows all things. And that's about all of us as well. Now, the next one that and uh, let's see the 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 uh, the fourth one. And this one, uh, let me see if I can put it this way. It's not one of my favorite articles. I'll just say it that way. It's just not. But I tell you, it's one of the most beneficial and the most helpful articles because it's necessary to understand this article right here in order to put everything else in place. When I came to uh, visit the Primitive Baptist through my grandparents and I wasn't brought up among the Primitive Baptists and the denominations that I grew up in had a different approach for uh, for salvation. Uh, Some of the churches had a plan for salvation. Some of them had uh, several things you had to do for salvation. 
There was always something that you had to do. You either had to accept, you had to believe, you had to pursue, you had to agree, you had to follow a course, you had to make a profession for your sins in order to secure your name in heaven. And so it was a delight for me when I finally uh, found out that there was a people that embraced the doctrines of grace in that there's not anything that we do that he does all of it for us. And he does it 100%. And then he draws us all the way to him. He doesn't draw us 90% of the way, but he draws us 100% of the way to him. And so as far as our eternal salvation, he totally takes care of it. And when I realized and understood this next article right here, I realized the importance of God drawing us to him and giving us spiritual life. Because this next one tells us right here that we're in pretty bad shape. Now, I hate to end on this next one because it's almost a discouraging uh, article. So I'm going to just touch on it and then I'm going to touch on number five because they really are a package deal right here in my opinion, I believe. We believe that Adam, though created in the image of his master, who pronounced him very good, did of his own volition willfully transgress the law of God. And as a consequence, became a fallen and totally depraved creature and all of mankind with him and all of mankind with him. That can be summed up as just simply saying that we believe that we are totally depraved, completely. Totally depraved means that we are completely spiritually dead. Now, if you go up here to the funeral home, you go to McComas or you go to one of these funeral homes and you find uh, laying in some of these uh, parlors uh, a corpse, you're going to realize that there's not anything that that corpse can do. You can go talk to it. You can encourage it. You can beg it. You can ask it. But it's not going to move a finger. It's not going to respond. There's not anything that's going to take place. Because it doesn't have the ability to do that. And that is exactly the condition that we are in through the sin of Adam. And then not only is it because of the sin of Adam, but shortly after we're born, we not only are sinners by nature through our forefather Adam, but it doesn't take long until we're sinners by practice. You see these little children that look so wonderful. But then it begins to change a little bit when they begin to manifest this Adam nature. And you begin to realize that they're not just perfect. And the reason they're not is because they're, uh, they're not created in perfection. Because we inherit the sin nature that we received from our forefather Adam. Now, I love little children. I love old people too, but we're all sinners. Uh, Maybe the little children are not sinners by practice, but you give them a little bit of time and you don't have to teach them how to sin. You don't. You don't have have to teach them how to question their parents or disobey. That just sort of comes naturally. And it's because of our natural man. So here's what in Genesis chapter 2 it says right here. He he says uh, in Genesis chapter two, and this is God telling uh, telling uh, Adam and Eve. He created uh, Adam and Eve. He he created all of 
uh, the earth and everything therein. And then it says that he rested. And, and I don't think that God rested because he was tired. I don't think that wore him out one bit to create the earth. And I don't think he did it because he was tired. He did it for an example for you and I. Because we need that. And we need to keep our mind focused upon the Lord. He says right here, And the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden that thou mayest freely eat, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest, thou shalt surely die. Now, that was not a natural death. They did not die a natural death right then when Eve partook of the fruit and uh, when, when Adam followed the transgression of Eve. That was not a natural death. Natural death was a result of it later on. But what he was talking about right there, in the day that you eat, you shall surely die. That's a spiritual death right there. And so we find ourselves, we are completely in a depraved, in a spiritual death situation. You can go on down and read in chapter 3. It says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. The one commandment that was given to Adam and Eve, and they couldn't keep that one commandment that was there. And the serpent said unto the woman, ye shall not surely die. Isn't it amazing how Satan begins to twist things up? That it's not really as bad as what you say it is or what God says it is. And in fact, not only is it not that bad, but you're actually going to benefit from it if you'll partake of it. You yourself will be as God's if you partake of it. And Satan takes that same approach today that if you'll partake, you're going to benefit in some fashion or another. Look what he says right here. He says, if you touch it. He says, the day that you touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the days that, there, that you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, in my mind, I think she was kind of justifying it right there. It looks like a good beneficial fruit. It's good for food. It says that, when she saw that it was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, there are three things that are mentioned right there. It looked like it was good for food. It looked like it was pleasant to the eyes. And it looked like that she would, her eyes would be opened and she'd be made wise. And sometimes that's Satan's approach to entice us with sin. Tells us the benefits of it. And says the uh, says that uh, she took the fruit thereof, and it says that she did eat, and she gave it to her husband with her, and he also did eat. And it goes on down to say the eyes of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together. They made them aprons. They heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam, and he said unto him, Where art thou? Now, I don't think God really wondered where they were. I think he knew where they were. But he said that for Adam's benefit. He said, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And God said, Well, Adam, who is it that told you that you were naked? 
He says, Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And then look at Adam's response. He says, Then Adam said, Well, the woman that you gave me, she, she, the woman that you gave us to me to be with, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And so the Lord said unto the woman, Why hast thou done this? And then she said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. In the day that thou eatest, thou shalt surely die. And that's the format of how it took place right there. Here's a few verses. The Lord knoweth, Psalm 94 verse 11, The Lord knoweth the thoughts of man, and they are vanity. Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. That's talking about Jesus Christ. But he's telling us that we ourselves go the wrong way. We go astray all the time. Isaiah 64, verse 6, but we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. He's talking about our righteousnesses. All uh, combined together, he says there, but filthy rags and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 23 says we don't have the ability to help ourselves. He says, can the Ethiopian change this, the, the, his skin or can the leopard change his spots? Then may ye also do good that are accustomed to doing evil. You don't care for your skin color. You decide you want to change it. Do you have the ability to do it? You have no ability to do that. Can the leopard change his spots? Absolutely not. And he says, neither can you start doing good that are accustomed to doing evil. You don't have the ability to do that. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We're in a bad case, in a depraved condition. Titus 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 3 says, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers, lust and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God, our Father, had mercy upon us, and He regenerated us. So by Jesus Christ doing a work of grace within our heart, we don't stay in this pitiful, depraved condition. It was necessary for me when I was making the journey and inquiring about the doctrines of grace to realize that I was completely and totally depraved in sin. And I had not the ability at all to help myself out of that condition. Therefore, we depend solely upon our Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's the next article. I like these to be sandwiched together, and I'll just touch on this as we wrap up. We believe that redemption, regeneration, sanctification, justification, and salvation are all by the virtue of the birth, life, death, resurrection, and mediation of Jesus Christ, and in no other way. And all the graces of the Spirit are referable to the church of God. Number one, we believe that redemption, what does that mean? We believe we're bought back with the price, and that price is the blood of Jesus Christ. We believe that regeneration, that means we're made alive in Christ. Ephesians 2, verse 1, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin. We believe that sanctification, that just simply means that we're made holy. 
that we're, we're made holy and it's not because we have become so holy in and of ourselves, but it is the righteousness of Christ that's imputed into us that makes us holy. It's not because we make all the right decisions. We think all the right thoughts that we go all the right ways. Any holiness or righteousness that we have is what Christ is working in and through us. And it says that um, we believe that justification, justification, we are justified in the eyes of God. We, there's a great big sin debt that we owe that we don't have any ability to pay. It was paid for by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, and that's going to pay the price for our sins. So you are justified in the eyes of Almighty God. I don't know if it's Brother Cook or Brother Chad, but I believe it's Brother Cook that said, when God sees us, He sees us holy and pure, and it's because we're justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. And then it says, finally, we believe that salvation, that means that we're delivered from what we deserve. We deserve to end up in hell. We deserve to end up in eternal torment. And if we don't end up there, it's because of what God has done for us. And so our fifth article that I believe should be, I believe if we have these, it ought to be like 4A and 4B rather than than number four and number five. Because I think packaging these together, it makes number four much more palatable to be able to understand that number five just helps you to uh, realize that you're not left in that pitiful, depraved condition. There's a lot more verses about it, and it gets a lot worse. But, and, and you can go and read about depravity, but the, the, the point is that we're in a bad way, and we're in great need of the grace of Almighty God. And so here's what he says. We, the article says, we believe that redemption, regeneration, sanctification, justification, and salvation come all by the birth, by the life, by the death, by the resurrection, by the mediation of Jesus Christ and no other way. And that's what we believe here at Mount Carmel. God bless you.